This is a new podcast from 6A Church called Questions, where I, along with Jim Huntimer and others, will sit down each week and take a look at some of the questions that people have about God, Christianity, the Bible, and so much more. Be sure to leave any questions you have for each episode on the comment section for that episode, and enjoy. Well, hello, everyone. It's good to have you here. This is something different that we're doing, but uh, I'm here with Jim. Jim's... Hi, I'm Jim. Joining us today uh, for for a, a new version of the 6-8 podcast. And uh, we started a series earlier this year going through a book by Timothy Keller called Reason for God, The Reason for God. And um, for s- several reasons, felt led to change the direction about halfway through, but we wanted to finish out the discussion uh, here on the podcast. And there's no one better to do that with than Jim, who knows a lot more about this stuff than I do. So... I asked Jim if he would sit down with me and we could talk through the rest of the the topics, uh, chapter by chapter, week by week uh, of the book. And today we're going to be digging into chapter six of the book, Reason for God, which is talking about that uh, science, the belief that science has disproved Christianity. But to get started, I wanted to just read a, a quick quote from the book. It's on page 88 and 89. I've got basically parts of three paragraphs I'd like to read. Um, The premise behind such a claim is, science has proven that there is no such thing as miracles, but embedded in such a statement is a leap of faith. It is one thing to say that science is only equipped to test for natural causes and cannot speak to any others. It's quite another to insist that science proves that no other causes could possibly exist. That is because, he says later, natural causes are the only kind its methodology can address. It's another thing to insist that science has proven that there can't be any other kind. There would be no experimental model for testing the statement, no supernatural cause for any natural phenomenon is possible. It is therefore a philosophical presupposition and not a scientific finding. So we want to get into uh, some discussion about about science. I'm going to let Jim start with uh, with the scripture that he has to kind of set the stage. Yeah. Well, it it always bothers me when I hear people saying, "Let's keep science over here and faith over here," and and it's true, faith is is very difficult to discuss within the scientific community. However, it all begins with the question of God's existence. Does he exist or does he not exist? And that has nothing to do with what anyone believes. Uh, I believe that God exists, but that doesn't make him exist. Somebody else believes that he doesn't exist, and that doesn't make him not exist. Right. We're not, by our beliefs, the architects of reality. Right, right, <laughs> right exactly. And, and that's actually the position the Bible takes. Um, for instance, in, in Psalm 119, the heavens declare the glory of God. In, it goes a little bit further in Romans chapter 1, um, since what, has been, what may be known about God is plain to them, that's mankind, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So from God's perspective, he's actually placed evidence, not just of his existence, but of his character and his power in the things that he has made, so that when it comes down to the final judgment, people are without excuse because the evidence is there in plain sight. And so the question of God's existence then becomes really a scientific investigation of looking at the evidence and considering what that evidence means. Right, and it's not just um, the the things that he has put in nature don't just tell us that he's a creator, that he's that he's a creative being. It also, he said in there, that it shows us his invisible qualities, his power, and his divine nature. So by by being able to observe reality, we can see what we need to know about God, right? It's not just not just that he's a strong God that could create the earth. There's more to it than that. Right. So, um, but Jim and I have actually, when I say Jim and I, it always sounds like Jim and I, <laughs> G-E-M-I-N-I. But um, 
Over the years, Jim and I have had a lot of discussions around this and other topics about creation and and uh, and scientific theory and how one of the things we both really adamantly believe is that science hasn't in any way disproven Christianity, but that uh, what science is actually doing is proving the Bible. The more the more science discovers about the created order, the more you can find those principles in Scripture. And one of the ones I like is just, you know, right now neuroscience is the big, the big discovery. Neuroscience is what a lot of people are, are really getting, uh, kind of geeking out on and, and learning all about how the mind works and how the brain works. But then when you overlay what the principles with how, how science is showing that the mind works, that's actually almost, you know, perfectly interwoven with how God talks about the mind, how God talks about the heart, which in the Old Testament contained you know, the idea of thinking, uh, when God said, love the Lord with all your heart, he was talking about your thoughts and, you know, all these things that, that science, I think, is actually starting to prove and show that the Bible's been right all along. So, I know you have some thoughts about that. Yeah, there's this, um, it's almost a, an arrogance. Um, of course, I think people on the side of, of faith also tend to get arrogant right, about their right. point of view as well, uh, that, that science disproves, like you mentioned at the very beginning, things like miracles, that uh, Jesus could not have risen from the dead because people don't rise from the right. dead, which is an assumption. It's it's a statement of faith, basically. Mm-hmm. You don't believe that it happens. Or, uh, you know, Moses or God parting the Red Sea, for instance, could not possibly have happened in the way it's described in the Bible. But the only way to prove that it could or couldn't have happened would be to to test it and observe it when it was happening, right? I mean, there's right, there's no right. way to, to to invent a time machine, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, sorry, I cut you off. That's all right, um, but it's it's just really really important that as you as you look at what science actually demonstrates, uh, I've never found anything that actually contradicts things. Um, it's when people start making assumptions that. Uh, for miracles can't happen or or these events can't happen but you see uh, constant confirmation being discovered in areas like archaeology neuroscience uh, in um, what what we what we think versus what we discover in anthropology for instance the what people believe there's a great deal of faith that people who reject uh, the the biblical perspective of reality, uh, rather than, than no, there's actually no proof that that should be rejected. Right. Yeah. And so let's let's dig into that a little bit. For instance, I know um, one of the things that I've shared is that I've I've had to come back around to a six literal days being an absolute truth. And for me, when I'm reading scripture, and part of the reason that I struggled with that I came was was because of all the discussion in science about how you know it would be it's just too long of a time period you know the earth is too old supposedly to uh, for God to have only made it in six days and then I realized that the reason I was struggling with that wasn't because it was impossible for God but it was because of my my faith my faith was limiting God's ability to be able to do something like that and so now I'm I'm fully uh, on board with a six literal days, and then once once we once we just talked uh, the other day about this. Once you kind of make that make that belief, uh, you kind of concede to that belief in Scripture, then it starts to change the way other parts of the Bible read. And talking about you know Sabbath is what we were talking about the other day. But um, let's talk about that. Let's get let's get into maybe just a little bit of the science around creation and some of the things we were talking about. On Monday, that no one that's listening would have heard because we weren't recording. <laughs> right, a lot of what is now assumed to be truth in in science, particularly about the Earth and and the ages, uh, did not come about based on any scientific research. Um, once the idea of evolution became popular among scientists who wanted to get away from the church's control of education. Um, they they realized that Darwinism taught that evolution took place in tiny increments over vast periods of time. Right. And, of, and of course, you have to have vast periods of time for that to be true. Um, 
And so they created this idea of the geological ages. Mm-hmm. And all it was was somebody figuring out, okay, how long would it take for this particular level of life to evolve into a higher level of life? And they basically arbitrarily created the dates for the geological ages. And it was only after that they started discovering dating systems. And there's literally hundreds of potential dating systems. Mm-hmm. All the dating system is is taking something where we know a process. We know how long it takes for a certain process to take place. And so if we can find if we can measure what the state of that process of one thing changing to another, for instance, uranium-238 changing into uranium-235, or carbon-14 changing to carbon-12. These processes can be timed out. So you say, for instance, you look at, you figure out how much uranium-238 and how much uranium-235 existed at the beginning of the process, then you look at that same ratio now, and you can figure out how long that process has been going on. And that's something we can observe right now. Right. Right. The problem is, and they don't tell you this, that you have to know what the ratio was at the very beginning of the process. And so they have to make a guess, and they make their guesses based on what, the dates are that they were they were hoping to find and they're literally only about five dating systems that are used and that's because those are the ones that are most likely to give the dates that were already established so they made a hypothesis on a date right and then they tried to force the 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 evidence to prove the hypothesis of their date right and when the dates don't turn out the way they want, then, well, there was an error in it or there was something that, that interfered with a process such as um, leaching some of the materials out or, and things of that nature. Uh, but there, there are many dating systems that, that actually give dates for the young Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, got, I've got 100 in a list at home that that date the Earth at 100,000 years or less. And there are many dating systems, such as looking at, at the amount of salt that, that accumulates in the oceans, which is a measurable process, hmm. um, that actually date the Earth at under 10,000 years. Hmm. Um, so uh, scientifically, the whole debate is, is open because you have – you can have any dating systems that support you because there's enough of them with different dates that right. can actually support what you want to believe. Well, and then and one of the ways that uh, that scripture actually starts to bring some more insight and uh, and shine a light on on the age of the earth is some of the discussions around the flood and on what the what the earth was like before the flood and the vapor canopy and some of those things that we could talk about. That really helped paint paint a better picture of uh, there was a different world before Noah's flood, before the no, before the flood, and then we we could also talk about um, how what what we've talked about before that a lot of scientists are becoming catastrophists. We should bring that into it, and how the mm-hmm. how Noah's flood really is something they they don't want to embrace, but it is actually what they're looking at, but trying to resist looking at it. But let's talk about the. Uh, Let's talk about the vapor canopy and the effect that, that the vapor canopy had not only on the length of human life, but also on da- dating. We were talking a while ago about how how dating would have changed as a result of some of these things. Right. Um, you know, it's really interesting when you compare the Genesis story of creation with the creation myths from other cultures. Uh, the Genesis story is straightforward. It actually speaks in scientific language that we, can, that we can relate to the real world. For instance, in Genesis 1, God separated the waters, and he placed some of the waters above the firmament and some of the waters below the firmament. And I always grew up thinking the firmament was the land, right. but it's not, because he defines the firmament as where the birds fly. Hmm. So it's actually the atmosphere, and he talks right there about placing the water above the atmosphere and then below on the surface of the earth. And uh, it's very interesting. I've I've read that the upper levels of the atmosphere have the capability of holding an immense amount of water. Which shouldn't be hard to imagine because we can look at other planets and see that they have an amazing 
you know, uh, right. Venus. gas canopy around them that's, that makes it impossible for us to see their surface. Right. Venus is, is a perfect example of that. And, and so, but there's also, if there were a vapor canopy, there are also some very important characteristics that we can predict would happen, such as the entire Earth would be tropical because the canopy would have the idea, would have the um, ability to diffuse the sun's rays so that they were spread out more evenly around the Earth. And of course, that's actually what uh, geology is discovering. Far in the past, everything seemed to be tropical everywhere. Um, including, you said, the North and South Poles. Right, right. They found tropical <laughs> evidence of tropical uh, life and plant life in, in the most desolate areas, the coldest, the hottest, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, also, Genesis talks about how the earth was watered, not through rain, but through the dew cycle. During the day, the water vapor would rise, and then during the night, it would fall. And and in in hot summer days, we've seen that on our own lawns mm-hmm. uh, with the water. And and if there were a vapor canopy, that's exactly what we would expect to find. Um, and and then in the description of the flood, we know that the waters welled up from the earth, but they also fell from from the sky and not just in rain but but in in torrents a tremendous amount of water mm-hmm. fell at that time and so the, there's a very good scientific basis for these stories and most it's very interesting that most people who work in the field of evolution today have rejected darwinism which is the idea that evolution takes place in tiny increments over vast periods of time. And the reason they've rejected it is because that's not what the fossil record tells us. Right. And, and so they're now saying that evolution took place very rapidly in response to worldwide cataclysmic changes. Right. And so they postulate a series of of cataclysms, whereas the Bible only has one cataclysm, which is the flood. Right. And you know, a good example of this we've talked about is here where we live, Mount St. Helens is 30 miles away as the as the crow flies, as people say. I don't know why they say that, because crows don't fly in a straight line. I don't know. <laughs> I think it'd take just as long to fly by crow as it would to drive there in a car. But... Um, there and there's there is a museum. There's a lot of research that has been done to show, you know, canyons carved out, you know, things that where you can see layers upon layers upon layers that appear, you know, according you know according to what we've been taught that they would just be deposited there over time, but they were deposited there in one afternoon. You know, they were deposited in in one instant, and then that and then canyons were carved out, which they would say would take millions and millions of years for that canyon to be carved out, but. Mount St. Helens again carved it out in in one afternoon in one event and uh so that's one example where you know with the Grand Canyon people would argue that you know scientists argue it's taken millions of years for the Grand Canyon to be carved out by it's the Colorado River right yeah the Colorado River that runs through the Grand Canyon but you know it's there's there's also uh the flood the you know the the flood the great flood and then there's a volcano not that far away from the grand canyon so there's uh, you know a lot of ways that the grand canyon could have been carved without it taking millions and millions of years but, yeah and and in the grand canyon you can see the the geological layers mm-hmm. in the walls of the grand canyon there's been a lot of research on on these layers yeah that was interesting and and the theory is that it, it it took literally millions of years for each layer to form through gradual right. de- deposit of of sediments, but they have fossils in them, and if through gradual deposits of sediments over millions of years, an animal dies or a plant dies, and the bacteria goes to work on it, and and it will disintegrate. So in order to form a fossil, it has to be completely buried suddenly, and then with all kinds of geological pressures, heat and and uh, weight and all of that before it can turn into a fossil. And so you can't have fossils forming under under uh, the traditional beliefs of, of geology. Because it would decompose. Because it would decompose, exactly. <laughs> there wouldn't be anything left. And it, I mean, even the bones are would decompose eventually. Right. They're, they're a lot slower than 
than uh, flesh, but um, but you also have uh, geological layers that have trees in a flood-like position where they were floating with the roots down right, right. and and the root. All visible, and then the tree trunk in an upright position mm-hmm. that have turned into fossils. The problem is you have half the tree in one layer, and then the other half the tree is in another layer that would have been laid down millions of years later, and mm-hmm. that's impossible unless both layers had been laid down in a very short time. And trees also decompose. <laughs> right. A lot faster than than animal, animal skeletons do. Right, right. So... Um, so that's that's one way where you know science would use the use the layers and has I mean that's what we were taught in our science classes growing up that these layers are, were deposited over millions of years and that you know and that's one of the way you know each layer represents a different time period and I think that was what you were referencing at the beginning of our conversation that there are all these different eras the. I don't know mm-hmm. Pleistocene area or something like right. something like that. The uh, Jurassic period, right? And, and all of these periods that uh, and that are defined by layers and the fossils and things that they find in those layers. But when you have a cataclysmic flood, cataclysmic flood like Noah's flood, um, we were talking. You would have you would have tidal waves. You were saying tidal right. waves going back and forth over the earth, and every Ma- time a wave yeah. goes over, massive burials, right? And, and yeah, yeah, that was one. Of, and it, a, a whole spe- a whole group of the same species died in the same place, mm-hmm. which means they were they were a herd escaping the rising waters of the flood. And 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 it's interesting in the geological column, you have the column of life as well. And uh, I think one possible interpretation of that column of life is the fact that the ones at the bottom were the ones least able to escape rising floodwaters. The ones at the top were the types of creatures that were most able to escape the floodwaters until they were finally overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but real quick, let's go back, because we didn't really talk much about the, about the effects of the, of the, the vapor canopy on dating. Okay. On, on carbon dating. Right. Carbon dating in particular. Carbon dating is a very accurate dating system. And basically what it is, the sun's cosmic rays, when they enter the atmosphere, and the atmosphere is filled with carbon, uh, they cause carbon-12, which is the natural state of carbon, to turn into carbon-14 because the cosmic rays add, add some things to the carbon. And then we know how fast it takes carbon-14 to change back into carbon-12. And so uh, there's a slight variation because the level of cosmic rays that come into the atmosphere varies, but we have things like tree rings that can demonstrate this. And so carbon-14 dating is considered accurate as long as we can verify this with other forms of, of with other carbon-based forms of life, like like trees or or animal artifacts and so on. Now, before the flood, they had the vapor canopy, so a lot fewer cosmic rays could reach the Earth, and and there would be a lot less change from carbon twelve to carbon fourteen, and so. What that would do is if you took a reading on some pre-flood uh, carbon-based uh, remains, it would appear to be a lot older than it actually is because the process before the flood would have been much slower. Uh, the second aspect of that is that uh, with fewer cosmic rays coming from the sun reaching life on the earth, uh, lifespan would be much things would live much longer for instance reptiles which dinosaurs are reptiles we don't seem to have dinosaurs today although there are a couple of reptiles that are actually just tiny dinosaurs mm-hmm. um, reptiles never stop growing and so if they lived longer before the flood you'd have the much larger creatures. In fact, you have things like saber-toothed tigers, which are giant tigers, and, and examples of, of ancient fossils of creatures that were much larger than we see today. And that could very easily be because the vapor canopy disappeared, and now things would age faster. And of course, right after the flood, human lifespans, according to the way the Bible 
describes them started dropping off radically. Right. Well, and and we can see, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we can see today a difference between the way things grow in the rainforest and you know in South America, and how they grow in colder climates, you know, farther up in North America. Right. You know, there's a big difference when when you have a warm, uh, moist, temperate climate all year round that doesn't really change much. It doesn't have a very big dynamic range in temperatures and things grow and grow and grow and grow almost without any kind of restriction. But you take the same tree and put it in, you know, in North, uh, North Dakota where you get harsh winters, it's going to, you know, it's going to take longer for that tree to get to the same size because of the difference in climate. Right. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's, yes. Yeah. So you can and yet see they, they find those the rainforest type growth all over the earth right. in you know as they look at the oldest rocks or like the woolly mammoth or right. you know, uh, uh, frozen in ice you know those kinds of things you know? with <laughs> with with plants that they had just right. eat, tropical plants that they had just eaten in their right. mouths right so obviously um, and actually that's one of the things you know I, I like. Um, catastrophe movies into the world kind of movies one of the movies is uh, the day after tomorrow and they talk about the the mammoth being frozen in ice with food in its mouth and that that movie just you know has this theory about super cold air being pulled down from the troposphere or something like mm-hmm. that and freezing things in an instant um so that so that that thing would have been just frozen standing still is basically the argument they were making are making in less you know in a few seconds um but it, but it, they are they are embracing as scientists a catastrophe, right? To be the to be the key event that changed everything, and that movie you know propagates that idea of a catastrophe of an ice age happening all at once, uh, and so, but Noah's flood was a catastrophe right. that a lot of scientists won't admit to happening, but now they're looking they're they're using catastrophe a big major catastrophe. What do they call it? the Missoula flood? I think as yeah. the, one of the ones that they, they in, call in, in the middle yeah. part of North America. But so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the flood and and some of the uh, some of the science about uh, catastrophe and how that's changed, you know, evolution. Right. Yeah. Fifty years ago, it would have been heresy to suggest there were worldwide catastrophes because the prevailing theory in geology was the uniform theory of uniformitarianism which is that everything has always happened with the same in the same way and there hasn't been any significant change um, in other words everything that we see on the earth's surface can be explained by processes that are going on today well now now that they've abandoned uniformitarian geology for the most part uh, they're opening up to to seeing all kinds of different things such as here in washington and oregon we have this massive basalt plate that that the earth cracked open and all this lava came out and that's something that you can't explain today. You you can't explain uh, massive oil fields or coal fields by things settling in the bottom of marshes over millions of years. That just will never turn into it. But at the bottom of Spirit Lake and Mount St. Helens, they say there's most likely a coal field forming there because it's got it's got massive plants being all buried in the same place. It's got heat. It's still very hot under underneath all of this and and you've got pressure with uh, all the sediments that are piled on top of it and i was i was sharing with you a theory of mine about uh, the gulf of mexico and we're this new series we're doing right now is called light pollution and i was looking at light pollution maps and there's a ridiculous amount of light pollution in the gulf of mexico from all of the offshore oil you know uh, stations the oil that they have rigs, yeah. and um why if if oil is formed from from basically decompo- decomposing flesh <laughs> you know a lot of people say dinosaurs but mm-hmm. just flat it would be just flesh how would there be out in the middle of the gulf of mexico massive deposits of of those kinds of animals they weren't walking around there they weren't living there you know how would they all be buried there in, in one spot if if there wasn't a catastrophe that washed them all out, 
you know, down the down the Mississippi River and then buried them in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, it'd be hard to explain such a massive deposit of oil in, in one one isolated spot like that without a big catastrophe, I think. Yeah. But um and then we were also talking about how how a flood, uh, Noah's flood could actually make it uh, easier to to explain things like Pangaea and and the continents moving and the pressure on the earth and then after the waters recede and everything's pliable you know I don't know if you want to share anything about that before we move on yeah well just just briefly if you consider a worldwide flood you'd have tidal waves flowing all over the earth and flowing back again uh, because the tidal pressures would still be there. And these would have profound effects on on the, the surface part of the earth. They also have uh, – it would it would open up the earth for the, um, the mountain-building things, for uh, vol- volcanoes to erupt. You'd have all kinds of major geological formation processes going on simply because of the pressure of all this water suddenly washing back and forth through the earth. You'd have massive burials. You'd have, you'd have massive sediment deposits, which would become the geological layers. Mm-hmm. And, and you'd have all the exceptions that, that, that uh, they find in geology to the, the theory. Layers turned upside down and, and so on. Uh, so there's just a tremendous amount of geological information that we can predict from the flood model. So changing courses a little bit from the book, he talks about um, a a, a uh, survey that was done in 1916 and in 1917, two famous studies um, that support. Um, let me backtrack just a little bit. You mentioned this early, earlier. Uh, Smith argues that the conflict model of the relationship of science to religion was a deliberate exaggeration used by both scientists and educational leaders at the end of the 19th century to undermine the church's control of their institutions and increase their own cultural power. So science was originally a part of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, the, chur- the churches basically controlled the educational environment throughout, throughout Europe and in North America. And then, was it evolution? Was it Darwin's evolution that started to cause that split? Or, or well, it, it, it actually that? happened be, before that. The science, the church, uh, and we don't realize this at the time. Their model of of creation and life was not from the Bible. It was from the teachings of Aristotle, hmm. and that's what they insisted that the scientists teach in the church. And the scientists observe things. They say that's not true. Okay. We we don't. <clears throat> want to teach things, not necessarily non-biblical, because the person who first identified fossils did it because of his belief in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Isaac Newton, you know, his theories came out of his personal belief in in God and and the consistency of his creation. Um, but from their observations, they said Aristotle was wrong, and the church says, "No, you teach it. We've got all the universities, so you teach what we tell you to." and they rebelled against that, as you would right. expect. And so they started creating their own schools. And consequently, they tried to, to eliminate religious teaching from their teaching. Right. And so they started looking for ways to explain what we see without resorting to a creator God. And, and that's, that's where the theory of evolution came from and why so many people jumped on it almost immediately. Um, so... It's it's something that came out of out of social issues and and belief issues as opposed to scientific research, right? But then uh, he says these two famous studies, um, American psychologist James Luba conducted the first survey of scientists, asking them if they believed in a god who actively communicates with humanity at least through prayer. Forty percent said they did. 40% said they did not, and 20% were not sure. In 1997, Edward Larson and Larry Witham repeated the survey asking the very same questions of scientists, and they reported in the scientific journal Nature that they had found that the numbers had not changed significantly in 80 years. So a lot of people would argue that, that you know, scientists in particular, but more and more people are b- believing the idea that science has disproved Christianity 
but that you know you would expect to see that among scientists if that were if that were true but that doesn't appear to be true according to this study and in fact it seems like the opposite is true that um, when a scientist uh, changes from you know at least for a while especially from evolution to maybe intelligent design you know or or creationism um, that they would be excommunicated and there there are lots of stories I think Ken Ham shares you know several of a, a lot of these but there are there are stories of of scientists who change their their viewpoint on how things happened and as a result of starting to teach a biblical teaching or a teaching that could at least coincide with scripture they started getting they they lost their tenured positions and got kicked out of their universities and I we've talked about that I don't know if you remember that but yeah yeah, the, there's a, an organization called the Creation Research Society, which was founded in the early 1960s. Uh, and in order to be a, a full member of that society, you have to you have to have an advanced degree in science. You have to have uh, you have to be working in a field of science, and you have to subscribe to a belief in in a young Earth. Uh, in other words, it's not millions of years old, but it can be dated in in thousands, uh, and you have to believe in in the the flood of Noah being a literal event mm-hmm. and a literal interpretation of Genesis. And th- right now there are over uh, six hundred members of of this group um, of, of scientists who believe these things, even while working as scientists. Now, usually when when there's the the loss of work. It's it's usually because they work for a university, and uh, but the theory of evolution has very little effect on practical science, where you're actually developing, uh, you know, new medicines or or working on developing uh, ways to to apply science to our lives and, and so on. There's there's virtually no practical application of the theory of evolution and those who have tried to do it haven't been successful at all. It reminds me of the Friends episode where um Ross Ross and Phoebe are going back and forth and she's pressuring him to say, Is can't are you you're just not willing to admit that there might be a small chance that evolution didn't happen and then Ross finally Okay, maybe there's a small chance, and she's, oh my, I couldn't, I can't believe you caved. <laughs> um, but it's, but it's a theory that it's not, it's not proven. It's still a theory. There's nowhere they've been able to observe this, right? I mean, right. Well, it's, you know, we're we're rarely taught this, but no scientist has ever figured out a workable model for how life can arise from non-life. You know, they have theories about a primordial ooze and we need to have all these uh, elements in it and, you know, lightning and thunder to provide energy, but they don't have a workable theory. How do we know that? Because if somebody had a workable theory, they would recreate it in a laboratory setting and literally would become the most famous scientists in history. Right. (laughs) And because that's what they want to, to figure out how that happened. Also, no scientist has ever figured out why evolution happens. They assume that there's this process going on that it's in <clears throat> excuse me inevitable that evolution takes place. That's why they get so excited about finding evidence of water on Mars because water is one of the things that are necessary. Mm-hmm. So if there's water, maybe life has occurred and 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 if it's there, if the conditions are there, it's going to happen. Life will evolve, but they don't know why. Yeah, you, you said there there must they're they're depending on an undiscovered law, right? That 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 somebody someday somebody's going to discover this law that's going to prove everything that they're trying to argue. Right. To believe in the theory of evolution, you have to believe that there is an undiscovered scientific law that makes evolution happen. Because one of the most proven laws in society is what's called the second law of thermodynamics, and its extensions are called usually called the law of entropy which states that everything goes from order to chaos, which is exactly the opposite right. of what the theory of evolution says. Which is something we can observe. <clears throat> right. And, <laughs> and, and we can also observe the fact that there are temporary reversals of entropy where things go from chaos 
to to life and more and more ordered life, such as human beings start as a fertilized egg and grow to be adult human beings, but eventually entropy takes over mm-hmm. and we die. And and that's true of every process that goes on in the universe. Eventually we die. The universe is dying a heat death because of entropy. You can have temporary reversals, but you have to have uh, things that cause those reversals. You have to have something to turn energy into work. You have to have a plan. Um, for instance, in our bodies, we have our cells are filled with things that take the energy that comes in and turns them into the kind of work to grow a human being. There's also a plan, DNA, which which is our blueprint. Mm-hmm. But for evolution, there's no there's no plan by which evolution takes place and there's no mechanism to turn the energy that's available into meaningful work to cause things to become more and more complex to have a higher and higher order of life it just isn't there like but but those those instances where where chaos becomes ordered only happen when they're acted on by an outside force yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, like even even in the wild, the only only times when when you know a, an overgrown brushy area changes would be when maybe a herd of animals comes through and eats it down to the ground, mm-hmm. and it looks like it's been maintained for a brief season, and then it all grows back into chaos again. Right. But you know, every but everything in in all of creation as being acted on by an outside force. Yeah. One really great example of that is when you look at the universe. Um, you know, the prevailing theory right now is the Big Bang, a, a, a huge, unimaginably huge explosion yeah, good. that sent everything out. But when you observe the universe today, everything in the universe is moving in an arc and is... Uh, spinning. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the laws of motion is that an object in motion will always travel in a straight line unless acted upon by an outside force. You know, when you throw a baseball, um, if it were in outer space, it would go in a straight line. But here on the Earth, gravity pulls it down to the Earth, and mm-hmm. so it, it, it arcs. And everything in the universe is traveling in an arc. Where is the outside force? I believe it, it, it's God. I right. mean, Hebrews teaches us that God actually holds the universe together mm-hmm. by the word of His mouth. Well, and and like you were saying as a kid, you were talking about if the if the Big Bang was true, and and it all started by an explosion, and everything travels in, in space travels in a straight line, then why are why are things moving on a collision course? Instead of moving farther and farther away from each other, if we've been traveling for billions of years as a result of an explosion, we should be out in the middle of nowhere, away from everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can remember reading that in an Isaac Asimov. He had a series of books of science for for kids, and and they were wonder, wonderful books. But in in one book about about space, he talks about how the Milky Way, where we live, is on a collision course with another galaxy. Right. And oh, ter- oh, horrible things! <laughs> you know, millions of years, whoever's alive then right. is going to experience that. And um, and I and I, it just started me thinking: How can they be on a collision course if if they were all propelled outward? And and it's just really, really true. The idea that. Um, there has to be something that's affecting right. things, right. and the only force that, that that's available is the existence of God. Yeah, it has to be a force big enough, right, to affect the universe, mm-hmm. all of the galaxies within the universe, right. So, um, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, there was one more one more thought I wanted to talk about, and I'm going to it's going to take me a minute to remember it. So you should talk about something for a second. Yeah. Well. It's just the idea. I think it's just really important to understand that people who believe in the theory of evolution do so by faith, because there's no scientific foundation for it. It's just an interpretation of of what they see in life. For instance, Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands, and one of the things that he noticed was that there were a series of valleys in which there were birds. I believe they were finches, but because they were isolated from other groups of finches, they started developing 
new characteristics, which gave him the idea for natural selection, which I think is a valid principle. He, had to, he made a leap, however, in saying that eventually this would cause them to, be, to evolve into different things because they were isolated, and yet they were all still finches. And, and so there, there's a leap of faith that takes place in going from the observable things that we can see and measure to, uh, to, what, to the theory of evolution and extrapolating as, as to what's going to happen or, or how things turned into something else. There are no fossil – there's no fossils – uh, that are true transitional forms. Mm-hmm. What a true transitional form would be, something halfway through an evolutionary process of change. Right. For instance, according to the theory of evolution, wings evolved three and possibly four times. Mm-hmm. And, and yet not a single fossil has ever been found of a creature with a half-evolved wing. And in fact, if, if such a creature existed, they natural selection would say that that species would die out because right. wings that didn't work would be a real hindrance. Right. And, and so um, things either didn't have wings or they had wings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it, it's just a leap of faith to try to fill things in, and the fossil record doesn't support that. Right, right. Um, like, like the penguin. Is it a bird? Or is it, or is it a, uh, a a sea creature? Yeah, you know, and you you could argue you could argue that it has wings, but I would look at it and say, based on the way it, it lives, it's a sea creature. It, it's not that different than a seal, you know, because it uses its so-called wings for navigating the water. Right. <laughs> the purpose isn't for flying. And one of the things that we've said is, or that I've said at least, is that. If evolution were real, somewhere with as many people as there are on the planet today and as many scientists as there are out studying in all of the most remote places on the planet looking for evidence of the theory, someone somewhere should find a a transitioning species today. Right. There should be somewhere on the planet and, you know, an animal that's changing from one, one into another. Right, but that's you can't see that anywhere, and no. this is the most observable time we've ever lived in. So, so that that, that makes it re- takes a lot of faith, I think, to believe that that's actually a, a real a real right. uh, answer to this question. But yeah. I remembered what I was trying to think of: um, human skulls and and the different shapes of, of uh-huh. human human heads that we were talking about the other day, and how those are oftentimes used. To portray, you know, a transitional nature from of, from primate to human form. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about that real quick. Yeah. Well, first first of all, there's a we have to realize that in every field of scholarship, this isn't and it's not something that's evil. It's just the nature of the game. In every field of scholarship, there is a bias toward finding something new. For instance, um, an anthropologist who found um, a different species rather than Homo sapien, a different kind of, of man, uh, either in the past or man evolving in the future. If, if a scientist finds something like that, that makes his career. Right. And so when he finds something, the, there's a bias toward interpreting what you find uh, in a way that's going to be more spectacular so that you, know, you become famous for, right, for right. finding it. There was an example in um, down in Indonesia where they found these human beings that were like three feet tall, or the the bones of humans who are three feet tall, and this was a new species. The guy that found them immediately started pushing this idea that it was a new species, mm. but further research indicated that no, this was these were people that the the. The regular human beings who lived in the villages said, "Oh no, we know them," and and in the recent past, they had actually intermingled and inter intermarried with these, so they they were just small human beings, mm-hmm. and and so this guy's idea, he wanted to find a new species because that would be good for him. He was too quick in in doing so, right. and and the fact is, even though we've now got several different species of human beings that they're trying to find either everything they found is either as either fully human or 
is in some kind of ape. Right. And and it, there's not really a transitional thing. Yeah, and um one of the one of the things we've talked about is that when Adam was created, he he was created with the perfect God, you know, an image of God DNA. Right. And then as as, you know, his children, which 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 helps explain why when his kids, you know, were having kids with their kid, you know, <laughs> siblings and that kind of thing. There wasn't, you know, why why weren't there mu- you know, weird mutations and and mm-hmm. all of that stuff immediately? It's because they were they were really close to the original DNA of the creator. Right. But then over time, and uh, as a result of the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter eleven, as as people spread out around the world and then became more and more isolated with the same kind of people, then. When you're marrying only the people in your same group with the same you know uh, background as you, then your DNA starts to morph, and you actually, you know, there are mutations that 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 cause changes that we would that people would say are evolutionary, but it's just it's mutation. It's mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to talk about that. No. It's, explain it better than I did. Well, a mutation would be essentially like um, take taking a wrench and and just randomly swinging it and hitting things in in the engine of your car and expecting the engine to perform better Mm -hmm. but no mutations are always either neutral or they do damage um so yeah um but so you know the different you know different sized skulls right it's it's a result probably most likely of a group of people, you know, you could imagine the the easiest scenario would be a, a group of of a, a tribe on an island, completely isolated from any outside source, continuing to intermarry with one another. And then we know this happened. You know, there's there's movies made about it. You know, about what happens with incest and all that stuff mm-hmm. in West Virginia and and some of those things that how how people can uh, can really. Suffer as a result of those kinds of things, and you can you could see that same thing happening when it's one group of people all confined, only uh, building relationships and reproducing within their within their people, which is why uh, um, Neanderthal. No, um, I was I was going to talk about. Um, you were talking about how when when armies would go in. Right. And conquer conquer other peoples and yeah they would yeah they would always keep the women because what they were doing was they were bringing new I mean they weren't thinking this but they were bringing new DNA material into their population which is always healthy right and and the idea any time a population gets isolated and this is true whether it's human or or any other kind of animal. Anytime a population gets isolated, they lose DNA material. They don't gain new material. They will always lose it. And that's where um, things like mutations um, are, are preserved and, and populations start taking on different characteristics because there's fewer, there's a, a smaller mix of DNA mm-hmm. to produce uh, these kinds of things. And and so, but it never produces something more. You have to have you have to bring in new DNA to refresh your pool, right? Well, I I think that's about it. I don't know if you have anything else you wanted to add on this topic, but uh, just wanted to uh, finish with the way he finishes off this chapter, page ninety eight and ninety nine. He says, "Miracles are hard to believe in, and they should be." And he talks about in Matthew 28, where this is after Jesus has resurrected, um, it says that when they saw him, when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And this is a remarkable admission. Here uh, is the author of an early Christian document telling us that some of the founders of Christianity couldn't believe the miracle of the resurrection, even when they were looking straight at him with their eyes and touching him with their, with their own hands. Uh, there's no other reason for this to be in the account unless it really happened. But then he says, It's also an encouragement to patience. All the apostles ended up as great leaders in the church, but some had a lot more trouble believing than others. We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem it, 
uh, to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretaste of what he is going to do with that power. And uh, just that, just to kind of finish on that reminder that uh, miracles are abnormal from our from our reality because we live in a cursed world. We live in a world mm-hmm. that's under a curse, and so our our world is is suffering the consequences of that curse and and at least part of that is the chaos at least part of that is the 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 entropy that you were talking about right. and so but simply because something appears to be uh so, something appears to contradict our observable order doesn't mean that even a miracle or, you know, that God could create the earth in six days or, you know, all of those things. Just because something seems to be outside of our ability to observe it does not mean that it could not have happened, right? It, it's, mm-hmm. it means that there there is a power bigger than us that did something that we cannot do. And someday, the hope is, the dream is, is that someday all of that's going to be restored and all of the problems that we're suffering right now are going to go away. Yeah. So, yeah, mir- miracles that we read in the Bible, if you really look at them critically, they're actually a temporary restoration uh, from this cursed world that right. we live in. Jesus stilled the storm. He, he brought it back to peace. Mm-hmm. Well, peace is what we look forward to right. in, the, in the future. But currently we live in this world that's essentially ruled by death. Mm-hmm. And. Jesus, uh, Jesus brought people back to life, and death itself is a result of the curse, right? I mean, it's a result of sin. Death is the punishment for sin. <clears throat> death is the, our, our result that we deserve for having rebelled against God. And it was not, you know, it doesn't seem like that was part of God's original idea for us to die. He wanted, he, you know, he had a tree of life in his garden. We could eat from the tree of life and live forever. But we chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and after we did that, he kicked us out of the garden, so we couldn't live forever. But even death itself, all you know, the death that we experience on an ongoing basis, and it, and it looks to me that the way God originally created the world before the flood of Noah, the world was created to sustain that kind of eternal life where we could live and live and live and live in God's paradise. I don't know if that's a jump, but it seems like that's how it was designed. Right. And... Even as you look at what God is doing in our lives today, He's restoring us to our full potential, mm-hmm. to what He wants us to be, and and He's gradually reversing the effects of the fact that we've grown up in this world, uh, and gradually removing the bad characteristics that we all carry and replacing them with the characteristics of, of God's character. Mm-hmm. And it's all about restoration. Right. And you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's one one thing that's changed is that uh, scientists used to believe that your mind couldn't change. Once you, whatever your mind was, it was just set. It was established, and you were just stuck with it. But now we know that you can renew your mind. That's one way that Scripture actually was ahead of science. And now we can see Scripture or science has proven Scripture once again that 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 renewal of our mind, where we were when we were in sin, our minds were were formed and shaped by rebellion and by embracing a sinful, rebellious life, now, through the presence of the Spirit of God, our minds can be renewed to think in a different way that thinks in a way of life as opposed to in a way of death. Um, but the Bible was ahead of science on that. <laughs> so, um, this obviously isn't, isn't a comprehensive look at this topic. There's, you know, books and books that have been written about these kinds of things. You have one that I think would be good to recommend for people if they want to go track it down. Well, yeah, uh, one of the books that was majorly responsible for the resurgence of creationism among among scientists was called The Genesis Flood, published in the late 1950s by by Henry Morris, which which takes a scientific look at the consequences of of creation and the flood. And it's just an excellent excellent book it covers a wide variety of, of subjects but it's basically looking at at science and that's the Genesis flood by the, by Henry Morris I don't, I don't know if you can get it on Amazon anywhere have you have you I, I would assume so yeah. because it's such it was such an influential book other things you can get on Amazon right now is uh, is hand sanitizer 
for <laughs> yeah <laughs> right for i i tried to buy it uh just yesterday or i looked it up and and i found 24 bottles for four hundred dollars <laughs> yeah i was thinking about i've got i've got a, a bottle of hand sanitizer in my car that's about three-fourths full i was thinking about putting it for sale on facebook and see how much i could get for it because <laughs> everybody's everybody's panicking right now about yeah. the uh, coronavirus which is a, another example of of how the world works as a result of the fall. The the yeah. virus is coming comes and attacks us and and tries to destroy life. Mm-hmm. And, it's uh, it's a negative mutation and and it's it's a perfect example of of the uh, the power of entropy. Right. So, well, that's our first discussion on uh, on the book. That was chapter six. Uh, Science has disproved Christianity of the book The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. We're going to continue doing this. Uh, The plan is to do one one chapter a week, and so next week we will get together again and look at chapter 7. You can't take the Bible literally. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.